The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that portion of scripture that we read at the beginning in the gospel according to St. John in the first chapter and looking especially at verse 17. The 17th verse in the first chapter of the gospel according to St. John. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law was given through or by Moses, but grace and truth came by or through Jesus Christ. Now, in these words, the apostle seems to sum up and to state in this succinct form what he has been stating right through this which is called the prologue or the introduction to his great gospel. Here he is, he's writing the account of the coming of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world, what he was like, what he did, what he said, and the meaning and the import of it all. And here he is introducing his great theme in this prologue and in this introduction. And I say here in these words, as in others, he seems to pause for a moment to sum it all up. He says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now this to John was the most marvelous and the most wonderful thing that had ever happened. Notice as you read the words that he can scarcely find language that is adequate to express his thoughts and his feelings. He is quite aware of the fact that he is about to write about the most momentous, striking, astounding thing that has ever taken place in the whole course, I say, of the human race. He calls it uh, a gospel. And gospel means good news. And to John, obviously, it is the greatest and the most wonderful and the most marvelous good news that has ever come. And he thrills at the thought of it. That all it means, how this blessed person, the word that was in the beginning, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Astounding. Ah, yes. But as John keeps on reminding us, this which to him was so marvelous and wonderful and thrilling, we, he says, beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and of his fullness have we received, and grace upon grace. The man is in a state of ecstasy. It's so marvelous, thrilling, astonishing. And yet, as I say, he knows perfectly well because he says it explicitly that the world didn't receive him. He came into the world, he was in the world, and the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. Indeed, it's worse, he came unto his own, his own people, the Jew, and his own received him not. That's the tragedy. That this tremendous thing has happened. 
And the world didn't recognize him. It rejected him and crucified him. And alas, I'm calling your attention to all this because it is still the same. The world speaking generally is not interested in this. The vast majority of people in this country tonight are not even considering it. And rather pride themselves on the fact that they do not consider it. Why? Well, you ask them and they'll tell you. The reason is that it seems to them to be so utterly irrelevant. Now let me give you a quotation, something I've read recently, in which this modern attitude is stated. Most people today, I read, are not anxious about the salvation of their immortal soul, nor very much interested in the doctrines of the cross. But they are anxious about automation and inflation and nuclear weapons and the living together of different races which modern life has forced upon them. Now, isn't that typical? That's it. That's a very perfect statement of it all. Most people today are not anxious about the salvation of their immortal souls, nor very much interested in the, in the doctrines of the cross. Why not? Ah, it's because they are anxious about automation. You know, this uh, introduction of machinery in the place of men. One machine doing the work of uh, ten men, perhaps a hundred men eventually. Automation. These machines doing things automatically. It's coming in in connection with the post office and the telephone and so on, isn't it? Automation. That's what they're concerned about. They're going to lose employment. What's going to happen to us all if machines are going to do everything? Very concerned about automation. And not only that, inflation. This spiral. Wages go up, that means prices go up, and up and up they go. And it's very difficult to make two ends meet. Inflation, which may even be threatening the whole future of the country. So they're very concerned about inflation. And likewise, nuclear weapons. Hydrogen bombs, atomic bombs, spearheads with atomic power in them, nuclear weapons. This possibility of hurling a missile from one continent to another and killing thousands and causing endless devastation. Oh, they're tremendously concerned in nuclear weapons and the whole problem of living together of different races. We can see it happening everywhere, not only in South Africa, but everywhere else. There is this problem, this clash of different races and different temperaments, and they're tremendously concerned about that, because out of that sort of thing, wars have so often arisen. And here is the typical modern man, you see, tremendously interested in these things, but not interested in the salvation of his immortal soul. Not interested in these doctrines and theories about the death of Jesus Christ and the cross on Calvary's hill. That is the reason they, they give us for saying that they're not interested in these methods. They feel that this gospel has got nothing to do with these great problems. These are the things they say that matter. And this gospel of yours, this old, old gospel that was being preached a hundred years ago and five hundred years ago, thousand years ago, nineteen hundred years ago, how can it possibly be relevant? We are living in 1957. There wasn't automation then. No problem of automation in those times past. No problem of inflation. No nuclear weapons. 
why they say the thing's out of date, it's utterly remote. But John's answer to all that is, and indeed it is the answer of the whole of the Bible from beginning to end, that not only does this deal with all these problems, but that this alone really does do so. And that it is because mankind in its blind folly, in its tragic ignorance, doesn't see that, that its problems persist. That is the very statement of the Christian church tonight. That is the message of the gospel. There is nothing so relevant to the world tonight as just this. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you in another way. Why should we consider this gospel? Why are we doing so this evening? Why should everybody do so? Why should we call upon the whole world to come and listen to this mighty problem? Why do we say that this is a unique message? Well, let me answer these questions as briefly as I can. The first answer to the question, obviously, is this one. This is God's message to men. That's my first reason. The law was given through Moses. It wasn't his message. He received it from whom? God. The law was given through Moses, but it's God's message. Now, everybody's agreed tonight that we need a message. Oh, we've never needed a message more, in a sense. And we know the reasons why we all need a message and are looking for a message. Why? Well, it's because of automation and inflation and nuclear weapons. Our world has become a very difficult place. Nobody knows what the future is. The outlook is bleak. And people are becoming desperate. They don't know what to do, nor where to turn. And what they're looking for, they're looking for a message. Everybody at the present moment is waiting for a message to come from Paris. The NATO powers are meeting. These great men are meeting together to study these problems. What are they going to say? What will be their message? What will be the communique that will be issued at the end of it all? We're all waiting for a message. We want a word. Cannot our problems be solved? Is there no comfort? Is there no consolation? Is there no hope? The world is waiting for a message. But we don't seem to have much com confidence, do we? In all these conferences. Why? Well, we've looked at conferences before. They've promised great things. Nothing has emerged. We've listened to men. We've listened to theories. We've listened to ideas. But they don't seem to have changed anything and we don't have any final satisfaction nor any lasting comfort. But why do they all fail? And the answer is perfectly simple. They're all men. I'm not here to detract from their greatness. Let's call them great men, if you like. Let's grant them all their ability and all their understanding. But they're only men. They're involved in this calamity with us. 
They are only of like passions with ourselves and limited in their understanding. All along they are but men, and yet the whole world is listening to men. A great statesman, a great philosopher, a great this or that. What's he going to say? What's his message? It never comes to anything because they're always men. But my dear friends, I remind you again that what we're looking at here this evening is from God. This isn't human. This is God speaking. Now, John puts it here in a very interesting manner. He takes the two great messages that God has given to mankind throughout its long and checkered history in this world. God has spoken to mankind in many different ways. God speaks in nature and creation, speaks in providence, speaks in history. But over and above that, God has spoken in two exceptional ways. And they are the two ways that John puts here in juxtaposition. The law was given through Moses. Now that's a unique event. And that is why it stands out in all the Old Testament history. There is no question at all but that the highest point in Old Testament history was that time, that point when Moses went up unto that mountain at the command of God to receive the law from God. Read about it for yourselves. In the book of Exodus, chapters 19, 20 and following, it is, I say, a staggering event. We are reminded here that no man hath seen God at any time, no, but Moses heard his voice. We are told elsewhere that he saw his back parts as it were, his back. No man hath seen God, but Moses was given this glimpse, this vision of God. But above all, I say, he heard the word of God, and he received a law from God. It's the pinnacle of Old Testament revelation. God speaking to men directly and giving his commandment. And then the other is, of course, the, the other half of my text. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so you will find right through the New Testament that there is this constant reference to the law and the gospel. You see, it's the Old Testament, it's the New Testament. Here they are, the two are together in this one volume which we call the Bible. Now, the Old Testament is just this law that was given through Moses. That's the essence of it all. The prophets interpreted it, they applied it. The psalmist does the same. The law is the thing, the dispensation of law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But here is the New Covenant, the New Testament, which has come through Jesus Christ. But the thing that I'm anxious to emphasize at this point is that they both have come from God. And it is because mankind persists in forgetting this that it goes so sadly astray. The law that was taught by Moses, I say again, was given by God. It wasn't, you know, as so many have been teaching in this present century, that the Jewish race happened to be evolving a little more rapidly than the others in its moral sense and its moral conception. 
It isn't that Moses happened to be a great and an outstanding religious genius who was able to penetrate further into the mystery of morals and behavior and drew up a code of his own. Moses doesn't say that. He denies it. He received it from God. This is the whole essence of this matter. It isn't man that speaks to us in the Ten Commandments and the Moral Law. It is God. You see, my friends, the world has always been in trouble. How mad we are to think that because it's now automation and inflation and nuclear weapons, that somehow it's an absolutely new problem. No, no, the world has always been in trouble. The world has always had its wars and its quarrels and its upsets. The world has always been a veil of tears from the very beginning of human history. Not only read it in your Bible, read it in your secular textbooks. The world has always been in its trouble. And yet, you see, it persists in refusing to listen to what God has had to say about it all. And yet God has spoken. Surely, clearly, and plainly. Oh, let me sum up this point by putting it to you just like this. Don't you think it's about time that we and everybody else began to listen to God? Are you still pinning your faith in statesmen, philosophers, artists, or anybody else? Do you really believe that it's within the capacity of men to solve these problems? What is this madness that possesses the human race? If we hadn't got a word from God, why God, I'd have nothing to say. If God had remained silent and abandoned us to our fate, I'd have no complaint. But God has spoken. God intervened through Moses. He created this race of Israel. In order that he might speak to them, he gave them his oracles, his words. He spoke to them and through them to the other nations, he set them apart in order that mankind might know his opinion, his will, his ideas about life. And yet the world persists in refusing to listen. Don't you see that this is the very essence of the modern tragedy? My dear friends, before I go any further, let me put this to you again. If you are unhappy and if you are bewildered, if you are distressed, if you are perplexed about life and the future and all that these things mean, these things we are told the modern man is so desperately concerned about, if you are, I say, don't you think it's about time you began to listen to what God has got to say? I'm not in this pulpit tonight to express my own opinions. God forbid that I should be arrogant enough to do a thing like that. I'm not standing here tonight to say what these statesmen ought to be doing in Paris at this NATO conference. I'm not here to give my opinion on any one of these subjects. What's my opinion better than anybody else's? No, no, that's not my commission. My commission is to remind you this evening that God has spoken and to remind you of what he said. I'm simply a mouthpiece. I'm simply in the succession that John the Baptist belonged to. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, which means listen to what God has got to say. That's my first reason for calling upon everybody to listen to this. But come to the second reason. 
My second reason, and it is the reason of the church and of the Bible itself for calling men to listen, is this. That this message is about our souls. Ah, but says somebody, that's what the modern man objects to. I know, that's the greatest reason of all for calling him to listen to it. That is, of course, where his blindness comes in. He says, what's the soul got to do with all this? Wait a minute, let me answer the question. There is nothing, I say, which is more terrible about men tonight than the fact that he boasts about the fact that he's not interested in the salvation of his immortal soul. Uh, this, to me, is the supreme and the final tragedy. He thinks he's clever in saying that. Oh, he says, of course, people were once interested in the salvation of their immortal souls. I'm not interested. Couldn't care less. Salvation of my immortal soul? I'm not interested. I'm interested in automation, inflation, nuclear weapons. That's the thing to be interested in. But wait a minute. Why have we got the problems of uh, inflation and automation and nuclear weapons? And the difficulty of races living together. Uh, tell me, uh, where do the problems come from? How do they arise? What's their genesis? What are they due to? Do you know the answer? It's because of the state of the souls of men and women. Nothing else. That's the whole explanation. Listen to James putting this in his epistle. Whence come wars amongst you? Where do they come from? What's the cause of war? And his answer is, even of your lusts that are within you. And isn't it true? Why are these nations uh, building and assembling these nuclear weapons? What's the matter with the nations? We know the answer, don't we? It's the same as the explanation of every other quarrel. Every quarrel between two brothers or two sisters, between parents and children, husband and wife. What's the cause of all quarrels? Is it anything but self and selfishness and self-centeredness? Is there any other explanation? Ah, but you say it's the other person. I'm all right. But the other person saying exactly the same about you. The cause of every quarrel is men's souls. Ah, but says the modern man, I'm not interested in the salvation. I'm interested in these terrific problems. Blind fool, where do your problems come from? They come from your souls. And I say the reason for listening to this gospel is because, thank God, it talks about the soul. It isn't interested in the manifestations of the disease, but in the disease itself. It isn't interested in the passing changes from century to century that the essential problem may chance to take. It's interested in the root. And the root is in the soul of men and in its state and condition as the result of sin. And that is the theme and the message of the Bible. But come, there's a second reason why we should be concerned about the soul. As it is the state of the soul alone that accounts for our problems, it is equally true to say that nothing, nothing, but the putting right of our soul can ever solve the problem. Do you agree with that? Do you accept that? It's absolutely vital to this gospel, but I can prove it to you historically. 
the world throughout known history has been concentrating on these problems, the problems of war and unhappiness and need and want and suffering. It's been concentrating on them. The Greek philosophers gave their entire time to it. That's the, how they began their philosophies. What is life? What can we do about it? Utopia. Draw up your blueprints of your utopia. Teach men how to live together. Politics. It's nothing except an attempt to solve these problems. The world has been doing nothing else for 4,000 years and more. And yet, would you like to say that we're any nearer to a solution tonight than we've ever been? Of course we're not. The problem is as desperate as ever, if not more so. Why? Well, because the problem is in the soul. And these things don't touch the soul. They can't help us there. There is only one solution to these problems, and that is to put the soul right. The thing the modern man treats with disdain, and says he's not interested, he couldn't care less. He's not interested about the salvation of his immortal soul. Oh no, he's so concerned about these other problems. And the poor man can't see in his blindness that he'll go on being troubled and go on with his problems and they'll multiply and increase until his soul is put right, until his soul, soul is saved. It's the only hope. The Bible, you see, has always said that what sin does to man is to make him a fool. But never was it more evident than today. And people betray themselves. They make this sort of statement voluntarily without anybody asking them. They say it to us. And thereby they display their ignorance and their muddle. But come, let me wind up this point by putting it in this form. Unconcerned about the salvation of their immortal soul and their eternal destiny. You know, I sometimes think that the real trouble with people who are not Christians is that they don't know anything about logic. Tremendously concerned about automation, inflation, nuclear weapons. Why? Well, they say because we are liable to be destroyed by these things. We may lose our work, be unhappy, we may be unable to have food, we may starve, and if these weapons are used, we shall be killed. And therefore we are concerned, because these things are threatening to kill us and to destroy our lives. And they say they're very deeply concerned about that, and rightly so. Don't misunderstand me. It is very right that we should be concerned about these things. Very well, then, let's follow the logic. If it is right that we should be concerned about these things, because they tend to destroy us and to kill us and to rob us of our lives and take us out of this world, isn't the next logical step to say this? Yes, and what happens to me when I go out of this world? Why should I be so concerned about being killed? Why should I be so frightened of death or starvation leading to death? Why? What's the reason for being so afraid of all this? And you see, the ultimate answer to that question is this. That the real and the only reason for being afraid of death is that to which death leads. 
It is appointed unto all men once to die, and after death, the judgment. Ah, but the modern man doesn't believe in that. He believes that when you die, that's the end. How does he know that? Can he prove that? Can he establish that? No, we're in a scientific age, can't we? Very well, we're in a scientific age. We want proofs, we say. We won't believe a thing unless we can prove it. Very well. Can you prove that when a man dies, that's the end? Is a man's death like switching off the light? Is it like a flower dying? Can you prove to me that there's nothing after death? Oh, but you say, I don't believe. I'm not interested in what you believe. I say you must be scientific. And if you're scientific, you must have proofs. Can you prove that there isn't life after death? And that your soul does not go on. All I'm saying is this. If you are troubled about what's going to happen to you in this world. Don't you think it's about time you begin to be troubled about what's going to happen to you in the next world? For the only evidence we have about that is this. That it goes on forever and forever and forever. It isn't a matter of suffering or being maimed perhaps. As the result of these atomic weapons. For 20, 30, 60, 70 years. But going on to all eternity. In misery and warfare and wretchedness. Not concerned about your immortal soul. Listen to the son of God speaking. Fear not them, he says, which kill the body, but after that have nothing that they can do. I will tell you whom you ought to fear. Fear him that hath power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't be afraid of men, said Jesus Christ. All men can do to you in the last analysis is just to kill you and to destroy your body. But when they've destroyed your body, they can do no more to you. If you want to fear anybody, well, don't fear mere atomic bombs and the men who set them off. Fear him, God, who hath power after death to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him, Oh, if I had no other reason for asking you to listen to this prologue, to this message, this Christmas message, if I had none other, this is enough. This speaks to you about your soul, the thing that matters above everything in this world and in the next. That's why I'm not talking about bombs and automation and the NATO conference and all these other things to you this evening, but repeating this ancient message which is here in the Gospel according to St. John. But come to my third reason. The third reason is the nature of the message. God's message about the soul and to the soul. And thirdly, the nature of the message itself. And here it is divided up quite simply. First, the law. The law that God gave. What has God said to us in giving the law? What was God saying to mankind when he addressed them of old through his servant Moses and he gave him the law and the commandments there on that holy mountain and Moses came down and spoke. What is God saying still to mankind through the law? Because it's still here. It hasn't been abrogated. It is still in operation and still has authority and power. What is its message? 
Is there anything in earth tonight which is more important than the answer to this question? As the first essential? What does the law tell us? Well, the first thing the law tells us is about God himself. I, the Lord, thy God, am a holy God. He tells us that he is the eternal God. That he is a jealous God. That he'll recognize none other. That he is the only God. That he is the creator and the sustainer of the whole universe. That he is from everlasting to everlasting. That he is holy. That he is righteous. That he is of purer eyes than to be able to look upon evil and sin. But we mustn't take his name in vain. Because he is God. Visiting the sins and transgressions of the fathers upon the children. And to the second and the third generation of them that hate him. That's what he said. Read it for yourselves. Go home and read the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. And there you will see that the primary and original meaning of the law was to state to us the holiness of God. I believe that the world has become interested again in the Ten Commandments. I don't know what it's saying about it, but if it doesn't start with the holiness of God, I'm referring to this film I see advertised, if it doesn't start by stressing and emphasizing the holiness and the righteousness, and the majesty, and the glory of God. It's missed the point. That's the first thing in the commandment. God, in his everlasting and eternal glory, and in his holy being. Well, I've repeated phrases to you already there in the scriptures. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Our God is a consuming fire. You remember, don't you, that the children of Israel were not allowed to touch that mountain, but there was a noise of thunder and there were flashes of lightning. What's it represent? The holiness of God. If any man or beast but touched that mountain, he was killed, he dropped dead. The holiness, the glory, the majesty, the might, the power of God the Creator, the everlasting God. Still the same, my friend. Automation and inflation and nuclear weapons don't make the slightest difference to God. He is eternally the same. He is the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The law tells us that. What else? Well, he tells us the demands that he makes on us. What are they? Well, go and read them. Ten commandments. You mustn't take his name in vain. You mustn't bow down to any graven image. You must observe his day and honor it. You must honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. <laughs> not interested, says the mother. I'm interested in automation. Well, you can be interested in automation and inflation and in nuclear weapons. But I'm rather suggesting to you that you ought to become interested also in the way in which you live. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. 
He mustn't covet somebody else's possession. Husband, wife, goods, animals, whatever it is. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You're breaking God's law if you do. And if you look at a woman to lust, you're sinning. That's what he says. That's the way you're to live. You're to live to him and to his glory. Our Lord summed it all up one day when he said this. Here's the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself. Do you know if everybody did that, there'd be no problem of inflation or automation or nuclear weapons. There'd be no need of a NATO conference if we all simply lived entirely and automatically to the glory of God and to helping one another, which is the commandment. You see, the problems would vanish. They'd disappear. God tells us that. Those are the demands he makes of us. That is what he expects of us. But then the law goes on. The next thing it does is to reveal to us certain things concerning ourselves. And what does the law reveal? Oh, this is terrible. Have you ever seen yourself? Because if you spend the whole of your time in simply discussing or reading about what are they again, inflation, automation, nuclear weapons and so on, You've never seen yourself at all, have you? And that's why people are interested in these things. You see, it's a problem outside myself somewhere. It's these people who are making these things. Who are these people? Who are these governments? The governments are nothing but you and myself and people like ourselves. We've put our prime minister into office. It doesn't matter what party you belong to. We as people of this country, the majority have done it. It's you and I who have done this. Who are these people who are making this? It's the people we have appointed. But you see, we don't like to face ourselves, so we're talking about them and governments and what they're doing. These blocks and these curtains and so on. Oh, it's very much more comfortable to be doing that, isn't it? But you see, God's law talks to you about yourself. Talks to me about myself. I stand and I look at God's law, and what do I see? I see myself, and this is what I see. I see my sinfulness. I see the things that I have done that I should not have done. I see how I've sinned against God. I haven't loved God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. I put other things before him. I put myself before him. I've deliberately broken his laws. I've done the things he's told me not to do. I haven't done the things he does tell me to do. I've sinned against him in word and thought and deed. The law makes me see that. Nothing but the law makes me see it. Then it reveals to me not only that I've committed actual sins, it does something which is infinitely worse. It reveals to me my pollution. For the trouble I find is not simply that I do things that are wrong, but that I should ever want to do them. That I should be such that I find it's a hard task to pray and to spend my time in God's presence and to read his word and to live the life he wants me to live, to live, and so easy to do the opposite. That's the thing the law reveals. My pollution, my nature is twisted, perverted, it's foul. There is no health in me. I am sick from the top of my head to the soles of my feet says the prophet Isaiah, and it's true. 
Or listen to the Apostle Paul saying it. When his eyes were open to the law, and when he really looked into that mirror, this is what he saw about himself. To desire is present with me, but how to perform I know not. The evil that I would not that I do, and the good that I would I do not. I find a law in my members dragging me down. There's a principle in me that takes my mind away from God and the scriptures to evil imaginations and thoughts. And I like them. And I give myself to them. What is it? What is this thing that's in me? My nature is polluted. Oh, wretched men that I am. Who shall deliver me? Not only does it show me that I am sinful, but it shows me my polluted nature. And then it goes on to show me my utter weakness and helplessness. As I've just been quoting to you, I can try to stop it. I can't stop. I take my resolutions. I break them. I put a great effort of will into it, and I cannot. And we're all the same. The law reveals that our weakness, our helplessness, our utter hopelessness. But it doesn't stop even there. Having revealed these things to us concerning ourselves... The law then goes on to make a pronouncement with respect to us, and it's this. The law, says the Apostle Paul to the Romans, worketh wrath. It says there is none righteous, no, not one. It says that the whole world lieth guilty before God. It says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. My dear good friend, whether you like that sort of thing or not is not the question of whether I like it or not. It's what God has said. He said it in the law, in the Ten Commandments. He said, if you sin, I'll punish you. God is righteous and holy and just, and he hates sin with the whole of his divine nature. And he has said that he will punish sin. His wrath will be poured upon men in sin, partly in this world, fully in the world that is to come. That is what the law says. The law was given through Moses. And that is what God said when he gave it. Oh, how I thank God that my text goes on and says that while the law was given through Moses that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's your Christmas message. Here's the gospel of the New Testament. Here is the best news that the world has ever heard. This is the thing that John gets so excited about. The thing that enthralls him and enthuses him, enthuses him and inspires him to write these amazing words here in this prologue. What's it mean? Grace has come, he says. Grace has come through Jesus Christ. What is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. Nothing else. Undeserved favor. Isn't that the very thing that you and I need? If we have seen ourselves in the mirror of the law, we realize that we don't deserve any favor at all. Not one of us. 
We have all sinned against him. We have all come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We don't deserve love or compassion. But in spite of that, he sent it. Grace, undeserved favor. Grace, it is a charming sound. Melodious to mine ear. It means the kindness and the love of God. His infinite compassion and mercy. Grace has come through Jesus Christ. How has it come? Well, you notice, read your Gospels and you'll find it came even through his teaching. Have you noticed his teaching? It was a teaching that seemed to hold out a hope for everybody. He spoke the parable of the Pharisee and the publican that went up into the temple to pray that self-righteous good men who thanked God that he was not like other people and especially like this publican and who does such a lot of good and the other poor men couldn't so much as lift up his head but could just cry out saying, God, have mercy, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the man that went down justified, says Christ. Grace, he taught it. But he not only taught it, he showed it in his life. He mixed with publicans and sinners. He spoke to harlots. He allowed them to come nearer to him and to wash his feet. The good people were all amazed. Why? Because they had no conception of grace. He's the friend of publicans and sinners. He receives sinful men. The refuse of society doesn't regard as outcasts. This is grace. This is love coming down to man in his vileness and telling him that it's ready to receive him. But above all, we see it in his cross, in his death on Calvary's hell. Grace came through Jesus Christ. How well like this. That he identified himself with us in our sinfulness. He took our sins upon himself. He suffered their punishment. He was moved for our transgressions. There was no sin in him. Nobody could accuse him. They tried and they failed. No one could point an accusing finger at him. Though he was perfect and sinless and guiltless, he took our sins upon himself and bore their punishment and died for them. And thus, God's grace can come upon us and to us. What is it? Well, free pardon. Though we deserve nothing but punishment, we are freely forgiven, all for nothing, everything for nothing. We do nothing at all, but just believe that Christ has died for our sins, and we are forgiven. That's grace. We are reconciled to God. We are made children of God. We are given the nature, the new nature, the new life. And then God's grace begins to fall upon us. Listen to John saying it. Eh, we have beheld his glory, he says, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And not only that, he says, but we have received of his fullness and grace 
upon grace, grace for grace, grace after grace, still more grace. We think we've got everything, then we get more. We are joined to him. The life of Christ begins to flow into us. That's receiving grace. And God shows his blessings upon us. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews exalts Christian people to approach the throne of grace with boldness. What for? To obtain mercy, he says, and grace to help in time of need. With inflation and automation and these terrible bombs and all this atomic power. And when the end may seem to come, and I don't know where I am, nor where to turn, nor what to do. What do I need? Grace to help in time of need. When all around my soul gives way, thou only art my strength and stay. That's grace. The Lord Jesus Christ strengthening you, holding you, giving you understanding. Well, that's the next thing. Grace and truth. I just close with a word. What does this truth mean? It means this. All the light and the knowledge and the understanding we can ever need is found in him. He is reality. He is ultimate truth. He is everything. He is the all and in all. He is wisdom from God. He said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What more do you want? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, yes. It's only as we look at him we see what man is meant to be, what man should be. And seeing that we see what we are, and we know the truth about ourselves, and then we feel desperate and lost and damned and utterly hopeless, and the world is collapsing and we don't know what to do. But then we see this other truth about him as the Savior, the Deliverer, the Rescuer, the one who will put us right in time, take us through death, and be with us through all eternity where we shall enjoy the sunshine of his face and drink in of the rivers of his pleasure without end forever and forever. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. My dear friends, the world is as it is tonight because it doesn't know what the law said and because it doesn't know what God has said through his only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The world is as it is because it's rebelling against God and his wrath is upon it. And it hasn't repented and submitted and turned back to him to receive his grace. That's why the world is as it is. But come. What about you? Have you heard the law? Have you heard what the law tells you about God? What it tells you about yourself? What it tells you about your eternal future? My dear friend, when you face that, believe me, that automation and inflation and these atomic weapons are mere nothing. They can only destroy the body. 
Here is something that tells you about your immortal soul that will go on forever and forever and forever and forever and forever and there'll be no end to it. And if you're not right with God, it'll be an endless torment and misery and wretchedness, infinitely worse than anything that can ever happen in this world. That's the statement of the Son of God as well as the statement of the law. Have you heard it? Have you realized it? Have you believed it? Have you felt the terror of it all? Then, do you know about this grace and truth that have come through Jesus Christ? Do you know that your sins can be forgiven here and now without your waiting to do anything at all, but just confessing your sin, but just acknowledging your iniquity, repenting, turning to God, asking for mercy, believing him when he tells you that he's punished your sins in his own son on Calvary's cross and that he'll forgive you everything and blot out your transgressions as a thick cloud and receive you to himself and make you his child, his son, and shower his grace upon you. The law was given, has been given through mercy, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. He has come to the world have you come to him? Come now. For if you come to him and are in him and are enjoying his salvation, I assure you that whatever may happen to you in time, you will be able to look at with a steady eye, knowing that if your soul is safe in his keeping, the world at its worst, and even hell, can never finally harm you. Come to him. Hasten to him. Let the Lord drive you to him. Be your schoolmaster to bring you unto him. That you may find in him all the grace you need. The final truth.